Several years ago, I read a story about a church that was praying for God to shut down a bar in their community. The story goes, the church prayed for months for God to shut down the bar, but the bar just kept going. Then one night there was a bad storm in the community and a lightning struck the bar, setting it on fire. The bar burned to the ground. The bar owner's insurance declared it to be an act of God so they didn't have to pay it off. The bar owner knew that the church had been praying for his bar to be shut down, so he decided to sue the church. When the court date came, he made his case that their prayers influenced God to strike his bar with lightning. The lightning started the fire and the fire burned his bar to the ground, destroying his life's work. The lawyer for the church countered by saying that while the church had indeed prayed for God to close down the bar, there was no way they were responsible for what happened to the bar. The judge looked at both groups involved in the suit. He took off his glasses. He looked at them and he said, let me get this straight. The bar owner believes in the power of prayer and the church doesn't. Now, to be perfectly honest, I can't remember where I read or heard that story, so I'm not 100% sure the story is true. But if there's one thing I've learned from politics and social media is that you never let the truth get in the way of a good story. The story to me illustrates something that might be true in our lives today. We pray and we ask God to do things. Save someone who's lost, to heal someone who's sick, to strengthen someone in need, to provide for a need that someone has. And as we pray, we confess our faith in God's greatness and and His power. And while our prayers sound faith-filled, there are doubts deep down that we never acknowledge. Then if the prayers don't get answered, we're like, you know, I never really thought that would happen anyway. And I wonder... Is it possible that our doubts are what is hindering God in what He wants to do in us and through us and for us? This morning we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that will help us to see that our our doubts or our unbelief, it can hinder what God wants to do and what we can do about our doubts and our unbelief. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 is where we're starting. Page is 748 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. So when when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer, fasting. Title of the message this morning is faith to meet spiritual needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And we we want so much to be your people that are devoted to doing your will, that bring you glory in all that we say and all that we do in the world around us. Father, we are surrounded by people who have great spiritual needs. And Lord, we are the ones who are meant to do something about it. 
You have saved us and you have appointed us to go and to do things to help those in the world around us. Father, we want we want to be those people. We want to help those. We want to make a difference in the world around us because of who Jesus is and what he has done in us and through us and for us. Father, it is so easy to let doubts creep in and keep us from doing the things that you want us to do. It's so easy to let doubts weaken our confidence in you, to let doubts cause us to fear, to let doubts cause us to feel inadequate. Father, there are so many things that that our doubts and our unbelief can do, and we want you to overcome that in our lives. Today, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to come and he would take your word and make it living and active in each of our hearts and lives. That he would use it to convict us where we need convicting, to strengthen us where we need strengthening, to encourage us where we need encouraging and to equip us where we need equipping. Let what happens here today make a difference in how we live this afternoon and tomorrow and the rest of the week. Be glorified in everything that we do. Help us to to be a people that see and do what we can to meet the spirit needs of the world around us. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak your words and your ways for your glory, that your will be done in all of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John as They are up on the mountain alone. They hear God speak. Jesus is transfigured. They see a measure of His glory. Amazed by what happens, they come down off of the mountain and meet a multitude with a problem. The problem that the multitude is dealing with has to do with a dad who brought his son to Jesus and and to his disciples expecting that they could make a difference in the boy's life. The boy was epileptic, but the epilepsy was caused by demonic either oppression or possession. The epilepsy and the demonic oppression, it caused him to have seizures that tossed him into the fire and into the water in an attempt to kill him. The dad was greatly distressed as there was no one on earth that could help. So he went to the one place he thought help might be found. It was to Jesus Christ. Finding his disciples, he asked them to do something and they are unable. The dad was surprised at their their un their inability to help. Jesus was not happy about their inability to help. He refers to them as a faithless and perverse generation. That that is not those are not words of uh, commendation. He is not excited that they have been with him all of this time, and yet they cannot do the things that he expects them to do. Jesus expects that you and I, as believers would be able to help those around us with their spiritual needs. And we are surrounded by people with a great variety of spiritual needs. Some are enslaved to sin. Some are deceived by the devil. Others are beat up by the cares of life. And Jesus expects that those of us who know him, we can do something to make a difference in their lives. That we can do what no one else in the world can, that we can actually help. Now, with the disciples, there are possibly any number of things that could have kept them from being able to help with this particular spiritual need. But Jesus tells us what it is. They ask in verse 19 because they they did all the things that they they knew to do. They tried all the things they they thought should have worked and none of it did. And so they asked Jesus in verse 19, why could we not cast it out? Why were we unable to make a difference? Jesus tells them in verse 20, it is because of your unbelief. 
Uh, Their unbelief kept them from being able to do what needed to be done. Their unbelief kept them from doing what Jesus wanted them to do. Their their unbelief, it kept them from doing what Jesus expected them to do. Their unbelief kept them from meeting the spiritual need uh, of this man that came to them. It is important for us to understand that our unbelief, our doubts, can keep us from being able to meet the spiritual needs of the world around us. Think about it like this. It doesn't necessarily take faith to meet purely physical needs. Right? You can give someone food when they're hungry, money when they're without, a coat when it's cold, or a place to stay when they're homeless without any faith whatsoever. Right? There, this is why there are compassion-based organizations that, that are not faith-based. It does not take faith to see a physical need and do what you can to meet that need. It merely takes compassion and the will to act. Spiritual needs are different from physical needs in that it does require faith to meet them. There is no physical way to help someone enslaved by sin find freedom. There is no physical way to help someone that is deceived by the devil to understand the truth. There is no physical way to help someone that is beat up by the cares of life to lay their burdens down. There is no physical way to meet these spiritual needs. Spiritual needs require spiritual help and spiritual help does require our faith always. And I like how Jesus explains their need for faith. Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this passage is one of the passages where we, we get the concept of mountain-moving faith. Who's heard of that before? You've ever heard somebody talk about having mountain-moving faith? And when we think about a mountain-moving faith or someone talks about it, generally it's talked about in terms of a really big faith. Someone who has a, just a, an enormous amount of faith in God. But the point of this passage isn't necessarily that they, have a real, that they need a bigger faith. Right? The mustard seed was the kind of the smallest of the seeds in Palestine. It was so small, it became proverbial for its smallness. The smallness of the mustard seed is being compared and contrasted with the bigness of the mountain. The point that Jesus is making is that a, a little faith can accomplish great things. Right there, for most of us as believers, the need isn't for a bigger faith. It's really for us to act on the little faith that we already have. A little faith can make a big difference. And what we have to recognize is that it's not the amount or the size of faith that a person has that causes results. It's not the enthusiasm of the faith that causes the results. It's not the person who has the faith that causes the results. In the end, our faith does something because of who our faith is in. Humans and human faith is not the key. God is the key. Faith accomplishes things because that faith is in God. This is why a a little faith, like that the size of a mustard seed, can accomplish a great thing like moving a mountain. So when it comes to the idea of meeting spiritual needs, the key principle for us today is that a little faith in a big God enables me to meet great spiritual needs. A little faith in a big God enables me to meet great spiritual needs. But we don't have to be great because we serve a God who is great. 
We don't have to have a big faith because we serve a God who is big. The power of faith is always bound up in the greatness of God and not in the size or the amount of our faith. Faith is powerful because God is powerful. Faith accomplishes things because God can accomplish things. And while a little faith in a big God enables us to meet great spiritual needs, unbelief can short-circuit what God wants to do in us, through us, and for us in meeting the spiritual needs in the world around us. And that is what happened with the disciples. And I wondered, what was their unbelief about? Seems unlikely that they didn't believe in Jesus. Seems unlikely they didn't believe that God existed. It seems unlikely they didn't believe in the necessarily even in the power of God. It seems that their doubts to me were not I, I want to say not theological as much as just practical. Where the rubber meets the road kind of doubts. I think there are two areas in which they had doubt that we, we can learn. What kind of faith we need to have so that we can see and meet the spiritual needs of the world around us. First is, I must believe that Jesus can make a difference in someone's life. I must believe that Jesus can make a difference in someone's life. The dad that came to them, he had a, he had a huge need. His son was demon-possessed. His son had seizures. The demon that caused the seizures tried to kill him by tossing him into the fire and into the water. Mark's account of the story said that he had had these from a child. So we don't know how long the kid, how long the kid had had it, but this does not seem to have been a, a new issue. I think it would also be safe to conclude that the dad had probably tried to find help before, wouldn't you imagine? Probably he had done everything they knew to do in that day to find help, and yet it had not helped. So for for years, the dad had tried to find people that would cast the demon out of his son. The dad had tried to find medical ways to cure the epilepsy. The dad had tried to find ways to protect his son from what was going on, and, and all of those ways failed. He was no better at all, despite all of that. And I think it's possible... That as he came to the disciples and he began to tell them all about what was going on and how long this had happened. That the disciples began in their minds, because of course they would never say it out loud. They began to think, there's just no way this is ever going to change. I mean, if it was going to get better, surely it would have gotten better by now. I mean, surely the dad had prayed. Surely the dad had gone to the temple and asked the the religious leaders to pray. Surely he had offered sacrifices and done all of the things that he knew to do. And it would be so easy for the disciples to look at, at how long this had gone on, how bad the situation was, and just say, it's just not, it's just not going to change. This poor guy, I hate to say it, this is the best it'll ever be. Let me ask Do you ever look at people with spiritual needs and just conclude they're they're not going to get any better? They've lived in certain kinds of sin for so long, there's just no way. There's no way they're ever coming out of it. They're so entrenched in their false spirituality and their false religion that there's just no way they're ever going to understand the truth 
about Jesus. You, you look at the fact that they're beat up by the burdens of life and you recognize that it's their bad decisions that continually put them in this place and say it doesn't matter if you fix this. They're just going to do it again. There, there is no way their lives are going to improve that these people, they have a, a history of living like this. They're deeply entrenched in these attitudes and in these actions. Their family history, their attitudes about changing, all of these things. You look and you just go, it's not going to happen. I'll pray. God, deliver them from sin. I know you can do all things. Save them. Deep in the back of your mind, you, you know. It ain't ever going to get better. You pray for them to understand the truth about Jesus. But deep in the back of your mind, you know. They're never going to renounce and let go of the, the deception that Satan has placed into their minds. You, you know that even if they come out of this particular trial and tribulation and problem they're having right now, tomorrow they're going to turn around when life is good and make the exact same mistakes and get right back into that same position again. We just, we just really don't believe that Jesus can make a difference in someone's life. And that is something we have to, I think we have to be honest about it first. But we have to be willing to reject it because everything in Scripture talks about being made new. Jesus talked about salvation as being born again. Paul talked about it as being washed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel referred to it as having a heart of stone literally taken out and a heart of flesh with a desire to do God's will being placed in someone's chest instead. All of that speaks of the, the dramatic change that Jesus can and does make in people's lives. In the Bible, in life, they're filled with examples of people who have been changed by Jesus. Just a couple. Moses. You know, we, we tend to look at the people in Scripture and we see the end of their story. Moses, man, what a hero, right? Walked before Pharaoh, let my people go. Stood before the Red Sea and held up his hands. Right? I mean, just the great lawgiver. What a, what a great guy. We forget what he was like when we meet him. When we meet him... He's the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's been raised in a life of wealth and privilege. He has severe anger management issues. To the point that when someone makes him mad, he kills them and buries the body. Then when he realizes people know it, rather than just standing up and saying, this is why I did it, he runs and hides for 40 years. When God meets with him and says, I'm going to deliver my people, Moses says, that's great. And God said, I'm going to use you to do it. And Moses begins to list all of the reasons why he cannot possibly be the great deliverer. I can't. I'm not a good speaker. God says, who made your mouth? I can make you talk. Um, they're going to ask me questions. I don't know. Just tell them what I say. Tell them I am that I am has sent you. Over. And over and over again, Moses just makes these excuses to the point that God finally gets to him. And Moses just said, no, 
Send somebody else. Moses, when we meet him, he is not the picture of the great deliverer we see dying on Mount Pisgah. He is an ordinary guy, anger issues, not especially bold, not especially courageous, not especially willing to step up and do what God wants him to do. And yet once he really gets to the place where God gets him, gets a hold of him, Moses goes out and, and makes a huge difference. One of the most significant people in the Old Testament. There's Peter. Again, we think of Peter as the great preacher on the day of Pentecost. Right, who died in a martyr's death, according to church history. Crucified upside down at his request. Because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord Jesus. But we forget when we meet Peter, he was the most ordinary guy imaginable. A fisherman. Involved in the family business. He, he often spoke before he thought. To the point that when Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to the cross, Peter contradicts him. No, Lord. No, Lord. That, that in itself is a contradiction. No, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me. What? What is Jesus calling? Satan. That's pretty bad, right? Jesus calling you Satan? You're in a bad way when you're doing that. But once he gets to the place where he truly understands Jesus and Jesus gets a, a, a fully a hold of him, then he becomes the great preacher on the day of Pentecost. Then he becomes the guy who's willing to die a martyr's death. There's, there's Matthew. Again, Matthew wrote the gospel. But we forget Matthew was a tax collector when we meet him. Tax collectors, right? IRS agents, except worse, if that's possible. He, the, the tax collectors were Jews who worked for an oppressive government to collect unjust taxes, and they were often crooked in the process. Right? Imagine, imagine if Canada invades and they conquer America. Right? And Scott goes to work for them to collect the taxes. In order to pay the taxes... Scott makes us listen to Justin Bieber music and pay whatever rate he thinks it needs to be. Right? Because that's the way it worked. The Romans just said, okay, from this town, we need $10,000. Anything a tax collector could raise over $10,000, they got to keep. So they, they extorted their own people for the enemy for as much as they could get. This is who Matthew was when we meet him. In the eyes of the Jews, he was unredeemable. God would never forgive a man who did that. And yet Jesus walks up to him, says, follow me. He gets up, he walks away from his tax collection booth, and he never looks back. Also, according to church history, martyred for, the, for his faith in Jesus. Then there's Paul. Paul may be one of the best examples in Scripture because Paul... Paul was, I mean, he had everything that was against him as far as faith in Jesus went. He was deceived by the devil in a false religion. He had a false sense of righteousness. He had a, a, a deep hatred for the church of Jesus Christ and the, and the Jesus Christ that the church was about. So much so that he went around the world with letters from the religious leaders collecting men and women, taking them to prison, giving them the choice. You can renounce your faith in Jesus or you can die. I mean, in a lot of ways, Paul was a terrorist of his day. 
And yet, once he met Jesus, he becomes basically the greatest church planner the world has ever known. He's the, the guy that God uses to write the majority of our New Testament. Jesus changed him completely. In, in just the world, a guy I met in the late 90s, early 2000s, his name was Eddie Hicks. When I met him, he was the pastor of a church in, in Florida. And it was a fairly successful church doing really well. But what stood out to me wasn't the success of Eddie's the church. It was Eddie's testimony. Eddie was, before he was saved, he was a, a drug dealer. And, and not some high school drug dealer. He was a legit boss man drug dealer who was violent in his dealings with others. He said it was not uncommon when people could not pay him for him to get going in his car and kick them out in an effort to convince them that it was really, really important that they go ahead and pay him the money that they owe him. He spent time in prison. And in prison, he got saved. And when he got saved, he came out and he was a changed man. He, he started the church that he pastored. His church was not only just a, a church like this, but they ran a, a rehab type ministry and a place for the, the homeless and the prostitutes and the pimps and, and all of the, the street people who were bound in the stuff he had been bound in for them to get out of that. But through his ministry, they, took, they never took a dollar of government funding. All of it was either raised or he paid for it personally out of his money. Through the ministry of their church, Hundreds, if not thousands, of drug dealers and drug addicts and prostitutes and pimps were, were taken off the streets. And they met Jesus Christ. And they were given a new life. And they are now profitable members of society, living for Jesus, helping do what they can to extend the kingdom. Because God worked in the life of a violent felon in prison. What God did with Paul... Peter and Matthew and Moses and Eddie, God can do in the life of, of anyone. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we must be convinced of this. We must be sure that we believe that if someone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. Jesus can change anyone's life. What he did in the Bible is not the end of who he is and what he does. He can massively and miraculously change anyone today just as he did then. Those of us who follow Jesus, we've got to be convinced of that. We must be convinced that Jesus can change anyone's life. Because if we are not convinced that Jesus can make a difference, we will have the kind of unbelief that keeps us from meeting the spiritual needs of the world around us. If nothing else, man, we, we ought to believe it because of the change that He's made in us. I'm not who I used to be. I'm not who I was. And it's because Jesus has made a difference in my life. And I know that what He did in me, He can do. In anyone. It only takes just a, just a little faith in a big God 
that He can change any life. And we can meet great spiritual needs in the world around us. Secondly, I must believe that Jesus can work through me to make a difference. I must believe that Jesus can work through me to make a difference. You know, it's totally, it's, it's possible that as the disciples heard this guy's story, they would believe Jesus could make a difference, but just Jesus. I mean, maybe they were out of their depth. Maybe this was beyond their capabilities. Jesus could, but, but they weren't the channel through whom Jesus was going to work. There was just no way that they could do it. But I mean, they were, they were just regular guys, most of them, when... Jesus met them. They were fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and other assorted people with no real religious training, no real, nothing exceptional about them. It wasn't that Jesus couldn't. It's just that they weren't the ones that would do it. Jesus couldn't work through them to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. I think this is something that we can wrestle with as well. It's easy for us to to look at ourselves and come up with reasons as to why Jesus could not work through me to make a difference in the world around me. You know, I don't know enough. What if they ask a question about a Bible verse and I I don't have the answer? I mean, what if they they ask me something and and I just I don't have an idea. I just I need to study some more and, and there's more I need to do. But I just at this point in my life, I don't know enough. To try to do what I can to help. There's no way that Jesus could work through me because I, I don't know enough. And, and, and I want to say here, in the end, you'll never really know enough. There are always questions people ask that you haven't thought of. There are always questions people ask that you never saw it that way. So if you wait until you know enough to be able to, to work and make a difference, you'll, you'll never make a difference. Because there will always be something you don't understand. But another one is I'm not good enough. Right. A lot of times we, we just know ourselves, don't we? I mean, we, we have problems. We're not perfect like everyone else is. We come to church and we, we see everybody else and nobody ever goes to the altar and everybody is always fine and no one ever struggles, but, but we do. We have besetting sins that pull at us all the time. We, we have bad attitudes and judgmental thoughts and, and sometimes we give in to our sinful nature and we do things we know we're not supposed to. Nobody else does that. And, and, even if we, and even if we have victory over our sinful nature, we, we've done things in our past. And when we were younger, the things that we did, who, who am I to ever tell someone else how to find freedom from slavery to sin. Who am I to ever say, here's what the truth is. Right? When I've done all of this, nobody else ever has ever done these things. It's just me. You know, the reality is, we've all got flaws. And we've all failed. And we've all got a past. And we've all got secrets. And we've all got issues that we wrestle with. 
if, unless we are like borderline narcissists, we're going to look in the mirror and we're going to see flaws in the person reflected back at us. We're going to see issues that aren't as they should be. And if we can't do anything to help anyone until the person looking back is perfect, we are never, ever, ever, ever going to make a difference in anyone else's life. Because the person looking back is always going to have problems. I'm not confident enough. You know, for some, the issue isn't necessarily knowledge or not feeling unworthy, but just this idea that, man, I can talk to people about any number of things, but let Jesus and salvation and the gospel and, and things like that come up. I get too nervous if I try to discuss spiritual or biblical issues. And I just, my mouth dries up, my, my hands start to sweat, my, my voice starts to crack. I'm just not confident enough to do it. And again, I tend to believe we're never actually going to arrive in that place. I've been the pastor here for 14 years. There are still some days when it's time to get up and preach, my stomach starts doing flip-flops because I'm so nervous about the thought of giving up to talk to people I know really well. That I don't know that we ever move beyond that. And I think it's probably good that we don't move beyond it. Because if, if I ever get to the place where I feel I've got it squared away, generally relying on Stacy instead of Jesus, and, and in the times I have felt the most squared away when I got up to preach, those were the times I'm almost certain I was speaking in tongues because I made no sense whatsoever. It was just like hopped up on cold medicine. Everybody's going... Hmm, interesting. We always are probably going to not feel confident. And I think that's the way it's always supposed to be because we're always going to need Jesus. And there are other things, probably reasons we could give. But I want you to notice what Jesus says. In the end, it, it all comes back down to not having faith. But look at what Jesus says. I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed... You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Now notice this last part. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now that's one of those passages and verses and statements. That just almost seems too big to be true, right? I mean, nothing will be impossible for me if I just have a, a mustard seed size faith. In Mark's account, Jesus says this. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. So let me ask you. Do you believe that because of Jesus, nothing is impossible for believers? you believe that? Do you believe that because of Jesus, all things are possible to those who believe? You know, the, the, of course, the Sunday school answer is yes, of course, I believe that. So let me make it more personal. Do you believe through your faith in Jesus, nothing is impossible for you?
Do you believe that because of Jesus, all things are possible for you? Not for someone out there somewhere. Not for a Rick Warren or a, a D.L. Moody or a John MacArthur. But for, for you. All things are possible for you if you believe. Nothing is impossible for you if you believe. Are, are we convinced that this is really the way the world works? Now, an important reminder about this is that we, this isn't, I believe in myself. This isn't some sort of positive self-talk. Our faith is not in our skills or our eloquence, our intelligence or our abilities. Our, our confidence is always in Jesus and what he can do. Jesus wants to work in us and through us and for us to meet the needs of the spiritual needs of the people around us. And if we believe that he can and will, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible, regardless of these issues here. Because the sufficiency is never in us, but it's always in Jesus. Paul says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. I love that verse. Because here's Paul. I mean, the Paul, the apostle, the educated, the miracle worker, the church planner. The dude who, who just God worked through to do amazing things. And Paul writes and he says, it's not me, man. I, I'm not sufficient to do the things that need to be done on my own. My sufficiency comes from Jesus. He, he makes me sufficient to do what needs to be done. I think there's two aspects of this. One is the humbling part. My sufficiency, your sufficiency, it's never in us. Anything God does in us and through us and for us, it's never because of how great we were, that we figured out the secret key, or that we twisted God's arm. Anything God does in us, through us and for us, it's because God was great and never because we were. That's, that's a humbling thought. But at the same time, the fact that Jesus makes me sufficient means that none of that really matters. I mean, not that we shouldn't study and not that we shouldn't try to live a holy life and not that we shouldn't work to overcome our fears. But in the end, God can do anything through anyone that he chooses to work through. He, he doesn't need us to know everything about everything to help someone with their spiritual needs. He, he doesn't need us to be perfect to meet someone's spiritual needs. He, he doesn't need us to be fearless to meet someone's spiritual needs. The reason is God knows everything, so he's able to work through our limited knowledge. God is good enough, and so he's able to, to fill up what's lacking in us. And God is able to work through our fears to show himself mighty on our behalf. In the end, it is always about the fact that, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In the end, anything God ever does in us, through us, and for us, it's always about God 
who does it. It's always God who gets the glory. It's always God who enables. It's God who makes us capable of doing anything that he wants us to do. He uses our weakness to highlight his strength. He uses our inadequacy to highlight his adequacy. He uses our fears to highlight his abilities. In all things, God works through us to show himself mighty. And to me, this is huge. Here's what I have come to believe. I have come to believe that if we feel perfectly confident and perfectly capable and perfectly able to do what we think Jesus is leading us to do, then there is a better than average chance Jesus really isn't leading us to do it. Because any time Jesus leads us to do something, it's always beyond ourselves so that we have to rely on Him. Why on earth would Jesus lead us to a place where we didn't need Him? You find in Scripture, everyone who was called to and sent to go and do something, many of them expressly stated, I'm not able to do what you want done. They felt inadequate. God's answer was always, I am enough. Trust me. What they were called to do was always beyond their abilities. The reason for that was so they would learn to rely on God, who can do all things. God doesn't need us to be great. He doesn't need us to be perfect. He's great. He's perfect. He needs us to believe. And He needs us to be faithful. And in the end, if I if I believe, and then I just do whatever I feel God is leading me to do, nothing will be impossible for me. All things will be possible for me in my life. As believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot say, I can't. And here's the thing. I can't sounds humble. I'm not adequate. I'm not able. But understand, I can't is a statement of doubt. It is a statement of unbelief. Because any time I say I can't, I'm saying Jesus can't. Because He is the one that has promised to give me the power. He is the one that has promised to make me sufficient. He is the one that has promised to enable me to do all things. So when I say I can't and I refuse, it is unbelief and disobedience. Always. As believers in Jesus Christ, that is not meant to be an option for us. We believe, so we do. Trusting that He will make us sufficient for what needs to be done. Now this is, I think, can be big things to think about. Gosh, that's huge to believe all of this. Mark's account includes one detail that's a really small detail, but one that I find beautiful. The dad goes to Jesus in Mark's account and he asked, do something if you can. And Jesus said, if I can, all things are possible if you can believe. The dad makes the most profound statement, maybe in all of Scripture. I believe, but help my unbelief. What an honest statement, right? 
He believed Jesus could make a difference, but I mean, come on. It had been years this kid had suffered. This was huge. Nobody else could do anything. He, he believed, but, but there were questions. There were conflicts. There were doubts. He had what I call an honest faith. He was just honest with Jesus. I, I believe. I really do. But whew, this is huge. I've got some issues. Do you know what Jesus did in response to this man's honest faith? We did the same thing he did in this passage. He rebuked the demon. He came out of the child. And he was cured from that very hour. Jesus doesn't even need us to have a perfect faith because he's already perfect. There are going to be times where we have questions. There are concerns. We believe Jesus can change this person's life, but there is just a long pattern of this that seems to question. We believe Jesus can work through us, but man, this is, this is way bigger than anything I ever thought I was capable of. And in those times, here's what I think we have to do. We have to do what the dad did. I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, there's no shame in opening up to Jesus and being honest about the questions and the doubts that we have. Because he already knows them anyway. He knows the thoughts that we think, even if we never speak them. When we have doubts and we don't express them, we don't keep them from Jesus. What that does do is build up a barrier between us and Jesus, though. There is nothing in the world wrong with saying, Jesus, this person is bound in sin and, and now they desperately need you to, to free them. And I believe that you can, but man, they've lived this way a long way. Man, they, they won't even listen to me when I talk. I, I, I just help me with my unbelief. Jesus, I believe that you can... Show them the truth instead of the devil's lies. But gosh, they are so indoctrinated. They are so holding on to that. They are so hard against the truth of the gospel. Help me in my unbelief. Jesus, I believe you can take their burdens away. and You can square their lives away and you can help them. But man, they just go from one issue to the next in their life. Help me in my unbelief. There is nothing in the world wrong with doing that. Jesus honored the honest faith then. He will honor our honest faith now. Because in the end, it's not about the size of our faith. It's just that of a mustard seed. It's about the size of the God that we have placed our faith in. It is the object of our faith that makes our faith powerful. Not the size of our faith. If we can just say, I believe, but help me not to doubt. Help me with my unbelief. Then there is nothing that would be impossible for us. All things would absolutely be possible as we seek to meet the spiritual needs of the world around us. Let's all stand.